Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're going to be talking with Janice Brooks. She's chairwoman of the Utah Humanities Council, governing board member for Intermountain Healthcare, St. George Regional Hospital, and IHC Ethics Committee member. She'll be giving a keynote address to the One Utah Summit, titled Leading with Creativity, Kindness, and Inclusion. That speech is tomorrow at 11 a.m. The summit is ongoing today and tomorrow at Southern Utah University, uh, and it is being streamed live at suu.edu slash live. That's suu.edu slash live. Uh, Janice Brooks has extensive experience in strategic communications, public affairs, corporate social responsibility analysis, crisis management, constituency and uh, community relations, and several other specialized areas. She held top-secret clearance and was security specialist for the Department of Energy for nine years. And she served as chairwoman of the Commissioner's Committee for National Association of Housing and Redevelopment Officials. She's the former CEO of Green Valley Spa and Resort in St. George, Utah. And uh, her website is janbrooksynergies.com. You can reach her by email to jan at janbrooksynergies.com and on Twitter at jbsynergies. Uh, so, uh, Janice Brooks, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Good morning, Tom. Thank you for having me on as a guest. I'm most honored. Well, we we appreciate you uh, being on. Uh, and that bio I just read just barely scratches the surface. I want to uh, hit some high points as we go along here. Uh, we talked oh, a few years ago about your one-woman theatrical show, uh, Traveling Shoes, in which you depicted eight women in history. I think you've adapted uh, some of that into lectures uh, now. So that's that's another uh, facet that we can talk about. As we go along, we'll be talking about uh, rural communities and uh, community building. We'll talk about ethics and problem solving, talk about Black Lives Matter and uh, other uh, related topics. Uh, but uh, before we dive into some of those things, and I do want to talk about some interesting things from your, your biography, Janice Brooks. Uh, so explain, um, th- we have the One Utah Summit, which used to be called the Utah Rural Summit, right? And you ex- were explaining to me we have a leadership academy, which is new, and your talk is bridging the two, I understand. That's correct. The um, governor's office and SUU um, have joined together um, to create the Utah Rural Leadership Academy. And um, so it is a year-long cohort group, and um, so individuals that come from both the public sector, the private sector, nonprofit sectors, um, and of course the majority of them are rural. Uh, that's a uh, when we think of something like Canab, you know, that we don't necessarily think of that as rural, but those areas sometimes that are grown so much um, they are considered rural but they're dealing with big city problems um, so within this academy um, is to equip county level elected leaders and relevant administration and management individuals with the skills through multiple learning experiences and in-person activities um, so this this bridge from the governor's summit into the Leadership Academy, um, attendees will can be can attend both, 
Um, and this is the kickoff for that academy. And my talk is on leading with creativity, kindness, and imagination. Well, very good. And by the way, um, the One Utah Summit, uh, the t- tickets are uh, sold out for that in person. Uh, luckily, um, you can uh, you can see the stream live. It's being streamed live. suu.edu slash sutv live. Janice Brooks's talk is uh, tomorrow at 11 o'clock. Much going on today and, uh, of course, tomorrow uh, as well. Janice Brooks, before we get into, uh, you know, some of the uh, themes that uh, we want to talk about today, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, some of your history. Um, I've known you for a, oh, a few years. Um, I didn't know half of this. I was reading an article in the Spectrum, Lisa Larson's article from a few years ago. Uh, I'd like to hit a, high, a few high points here, if I if I can, just to start the program. Uh, for people who may know you in one respect and may not know the you know the more of Janice Brooks. Um, so I'm reading here, you uh, grew up very service-oriented parents, raised with the idea that volunteering and civic involvement was just a way of life. Uh, so you've served on an excess of 80 community boards. It says here, starting with your time as a candy striper at age 14. You were a candy striper? Yes, at Sunrise Hospital in Las Vegas, Nevada. Yeah, that's so remind people what a candy striper is. or uh, I don't know if they still have them. Uh, Probably not. Mm. Um, Most hospitals now have a a auxiliary and they service, you know, to welcome and give people directions to a person's room and find out if, you know, if it's, if they're allowed access. But um, the um, original candy stripers were um, teenage girls, predominantly, and we would deliver flowers to individuals' rooms. When flowers were delivered from the florist shops, we would deliver them to the room, cards. Think of how it's even amazing to think that, you know, people would mail someone a letter at the hospital. Mm -hmm. You know, if they had a newborn baby, they would mail a letter to the hospital. And uh, people loved to get the mail. And, uh, And so sometimes you were escorting someone to a room that may have come to visit someone and they were in a wheelchair. And so you moved around the hospital very fastidiously and uh, got to know patients and wings and nurses and uh, good communication building skills. (laughs) (laughs) That's wonderful. That's great to picture that. Um, so civic involvement, uh, a lot of people don't do that. You, you were raised that this was just a part of life. What, what, is that, uh, what does that do for you? What does that do for the, for the community? Well, I, because it was so much a part of my daily life, my mother was involved with, in the, my brother had muscular dystrophy, so she was always involved with, uh, special needs children, paraplegics, uh, muscular dystrophy, and uh, in addition to that, for over 25 years, she was um, the nighttime on-call person for the suicide hotline. And so I can remember when we got two lines at our house, the two-line phone, and we thought it was just wonderful. But then we realized we could not use the phone. It was in the laundry room. It was only meant uh, for that. 
and um, and so she served on the uh, women's. There was a women's council of Christians and Jews, and um, so they would have meetings at the house. Um, she was involved in education in the school board. Um, Helen J. Stewart, many people know that school in Las Vegas, uh, and that was before individuals with a physical um, limitation were in schools by themselves before they matriculated them into regular schools. So my mother was a big advocate for that. And the funnest thing ever was my mother was one of the, um, there was a cadre of people who would organize the callers for the Jerry Lewis telethon. And that in itself was like a command post and uh, and she did that for years. So, you know, the, the, the telethon would end, and it would only be a few, a month or two later, and they would start back again with organizing and to man those phones 24 hours. You know, it's just a signature event in Las Vegas and around the world, and it had great impact, but the number of people that it actually took behind the scenes was enormous. Yeah, wow, your mother sounds like uh, quite the woman. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. A lot of good, a lot of good. Um, so uh, I'm reading here that you uh, started at Utah at Arizona State University at age 15. Uh, so it, <laughs> uh, er, early there. Interested in theology, you say uh, a passion ignited by the spiritually ambidextrous environment in which you were raised. Tell me about that. So my mother uh, was raised Baptist and um, and then for many years attended um, the Church of God in Christ, which was Pentecostal. Um, and then she moved to a much more non-denominational um, church, but we, I had all of those iterations. My father, on the other hand, was quite um, the very agnostic and um, and would probably be have some leanings toward um, the humanist value rather than God centric, and so he was always question everything and uh, understand um, the miracle of of the human will, and so in, in many ways that also. I saw it as something that was very powerful because it always, to me, and as I got older, I realized it, it created a, a real balance, a spiritual balance for me. Then uh, I, I understand that, uh, for, at least for a brief while, you considered becoming an opera singer. Well, I loved opera. One of the I absolutely loved on Sundays where you could listen to um, the radio and you would hear opera singing, or, or Saturdays, you know, it was on the weekend and when we were doing housework and things like that. And um, and I, I didn't have any training. I just loved to sing along with the radio. And um, so it was it was a uh, an ambition of the heart. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder, wonderful. Uh, so you, you ultimately majored in uh, criminal justice, then got a master's degree in public administration, public policy. And uh, it sounds like you did a little bit of everything, selling insurance, uh, working as a night auditor at a hospital. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, that. 
Well, when I, after I graduated from college and came back to Las Vegas, um, the type of job at the time I was in, I had my criminal justice degree, but almost um, at the end of my last year, I had this great epiphany that I had gotten a degree in something that I wasn't sure if that was what I really wanted to do. Um, I had thought early on about being a, a police detective or forensics or, some, you know, something particularly in that specialty area or maybe a criminal lawyer. Uh, but those things took some different time. In the interim, I actually did apply, and that's when I started to work for the Department of Energy. But in that interim time, I was taking all kinds of jobs. I was fortunate enough to be able to experiment with um, people who said, hey, there's a job over here, and if you had a college degree, it was people thought that that made you some trainable. My parents used to always say that's just uh, a degree is just to let people know that you know how to show up and and think and figure out solutions. It doesn't necessarily make you smart. Um, and, um, and so um, working at the hospital, um, it was a way to... Um, it was a job that a friend had had, and the night auditor position was one that was just even thinking about billing by hand. Uh, there wasn't an automated system. It was a it was women's hospital in Las Vegas, so it was just uh, women and children's hospital down off of Charleston. And then, as while I was doing that, another good friend of my mother suggested that maybe I get a insurance license. So I went and got my um, life and health insurance and uh, decided maybe I would delve into that for a little bit. All in all, I want to pause for a moment to say that um, I could probably be considered, I said this last night, the classic ADHD person and, but I have put my ADHD to good use, <laughs> and I have meticulously um, experienced so many, so many things because I always felt that if you can harness deadlines, which sometimes is that obstacle for someone who has a brain that is always going, so... Um, you know, I would work in chunks. And so that always allowed me to do multiple things at the same time. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's, yeah, yeah, that's that's a really good point. I want to have you maybe emphasize that. Um, that that Because that could be, you know, it could be just disabling, right? But if you harness it, right, you can accomplish a lot of things the way you have. Yes. I remember reading about, you know, certain... Um, you know, certain individuals who, um, well, even when we, you know, we think about um, Benjamin Franklin, uh, we think about, uh, you know, many individuals that had, you know, they were scientists and inventors and, um, and poets. Um, I think it's much more common now because there's this, I would say, within the last, two decades that it is, you know, you, you could be a concert pianist and an emergency room surgeon and a canyoneering guide. And I know people who have those iterations in their own life. 
So that single-tracked human um, in terms of career and attribute, what I, when I say harness, I'm, I mean it is using time efficiently. And, um, and I think that is a great challenge in today's world to use time efficiently because there are so many distractions uh, that take up a lot of time. But um, I bought a, a, a vintage book at a bookshop bookstore in uh, Louisiana several years ago, and it was written in the late 1800s. And it, um, the, I was intrigued by the book because it talked about the art of leisure, and the art of leisure was, was really about having the time to pursue these wonderful academic and creative endeavors, and that was considered leisure. Interesting. Yeah, that was leisure. That was the definition. Definite, yes. Different yes. from what we define it as. Yeah. Exactly, yes. Yes, it's not full-size, you know, um, and I'm not saying that people didn't do some of those things, yeah. but uh, it's, it's not a singular definition. Uh, we need to go to break here soon, but I want to pull this in here. Um, you talk in this article about uh, your love of reading. Uh, you say, I read almost everything, cookbooks, washing machine manuals, <laughs> everything. Reading is your enjoyment. And, and you give some advice to people here. You, you say you try to use early hours of each day to do things you enjoy. Uh, and people often, you point out, do it the opposite. Let's get the work done, then at the end of the day we can do something we enjoy. You say you don't have to take a lot of time, but do something you enjoy to start the day out. That's correct. And I, I'm a firm um, believer um, in that. And a lot of people sometimes think of that as exercise. So they leave those academic pursuits for, for the end of the day or um, those intellectual pursuits, those reading of poetry. So, uh, you know, whether it was reading the newspaper in the morning or books, it was something to be cultivated. And, and I think that it makes a difference in a person's life when um, they've given the highest priority Almost like the sun comes up as the highest priority of the day. Put your highest, put put shine the light on your highest priority when when you you know when you arise every moment. We're talking with Janice Brooks. Uh, she is a chairwoman of the Utah Humanities Council, governing board member for Intermountain Healthcare, St. George Regional Hospital, and IHC Ethics Committee member. Uh, she is uh, with JanBrookSynergies.com. You can find her at that website or Jan at JanBrookSynergies.com is the email on Twitter at JB Synergies. Um, and uh, she's giving a keynote address to the One Utah Summit titled Leading with Creativity, Kindness, and Inclusion. And that speech is tomorrow at 11 a.m. That summit is ongoing today and tomorrow at Southern Utah University, but the in-person tickets are sold out. The good news is you can stream uh, most of the summit live. Uh, here's where you go, suu.edu slash live. That's suu.edu slash live. And we'll have uh, much more with uh, Janice Brooks following this break.
Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering music, dining, nightlife, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. This is Dan Johnson for Bringing More to Life. There are 53 million family caregivers in the U.S., and they provide 37 billion hours of unpaid care for their loved ones. That's worth $470 billion, which is more than all out-of-pocket spending on U.S. health care. The typical caregiver reports high stress from this unpaid role. Respite is a service that allows caregivers to take a break while someone stays with their loved ones. Respite can reduce caregiver burnout and keep loved ones in their home longer. Yet only 14% of caregivers report they have used respite services. Encourage the caregivers you know to take advantage of respite through programs like RSVP. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Retired and Senior Volunteer Program of Cash and Rich Counties, bolstering social support and well-being of aging adults and family caregivers. Information at sunshineterrace.org slash RSVP. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. Uh, we're talking with Janice Brooks uh, today. She is uh, giving a keynote address to the One Utah Summit tomorrow, 11 a.m. Uh, and that summit is ongoing today and tomorrow at Southern Utah University. Tickets sold out for the in-person, but you can stream uh, the I think most of the events uh, today and tomorrow at suu.edu/sutv/live. Um, you can find uh, Janice Brooks at her website, janbrooksynergies.com. Email is jan at janbrooksynergies.com. Uh, on uh, Twitter, she's at jbsynergies. We ha- we'll have her phone number up here on our website as well, if you want to contact her by phone. Um, and uh, Jan- Janice Brooks is chairwoman of the Utah Humanities Council, governing board member for Intermountain Healthcare St. George Regional Hospital, IHC Ethics Committee member, uh, and uh, and much more that she does in the community. We're going to be talking about that. We'll talk about rural communities and uh, what they have to teach us. Uh, we'll talk about Black Lives Matter and uh, ethics and problem solving as we go along. Jess Brooks, uh, I just want a couple more things from your bio before we get into some of those uh, other uh, items. Uh, you um, you worked for the Department of Energy in Las Vegas, top secret clearance and security operations for Department of Energy at Las Vegas. Tell me about that a little bit. Yeah, so um, I said I was a threefer, and um, at the time, uh, there were many of the uh, governmental jobs that um, in the higher echelon were part of recruitment through affirmative action. And so in the position that um, I ended up testing high for in security forces, um, I was both a, I was an African-American woman, so it allowed for that, um, to fulfill that box. Um, I had um, a college degree, so a lot of times someone may have had a military background, but not necessarily an academic degree. Uh, At the time, I did not have my master's. I was actually uh, in school for my master's at the time that I uh, got my uh, clearance. And um, and then there was where you had to test extremely 
um, high, and then also being a woman, where women had the the foreign service test, so that you had to both both academically and physically challenging pass all of those things. And women, the physical challenge for women were usually very extremely hard. So, um, so I was a threefer, and that's how I got into working for and um, worked for the Department of Energy for. Uh, nine, nine and a half years, almost, almost a decade. And then you, um, your quote is saying you came to St. George as a stage mom. <laughs> Tell me about that. Yeah, so my foray out of the the, the Department of Energy, uh, I mean, I say nine and a half, ten, was because I actually went on maternity leave and finished my time so that I could have ten years on maternity leave. I at the age of 35, I had a, a son. He is now 30 years old, and um, he was very gifted in um, all aspects of the arts, violinist, uh, a great storyteller, great acting skills, and we homeschooled. And so when my son was cast when he was 12 years old in Annie, get your gun at Tuacon Center for the Arts. And it was just the funniest, absolutely funniest thing. And um, every night, and um, Andy, uh, uh, Mindy Smoot uh, played Annie, and she'd whistle and call, Little Jake, Little Jake. <laughs> and my son would run out with this raccoon hat on. And when he'd take the hat off, you know, he had this little afro. And people in the audience would just crack up laughing and um, it was it was just a wonderful wonderful experience and that's how we ended up um, being in Utah he actually did two seasons at well he did more seasons but he worked two seasons as a child actor at Tuacon and then actually did two seasons at the Shakespeare Festival as a child actor also and, of course, in St. George, you continue to be involved, right? The, this ethic that your parents taught you, uh, continue to serve on boards, continue to be uh, heavily, heavily involved in the St. George community. Yes, and the first board that I um, served on was um, the Southwest Symphony, and because of my love of classical music, and I served on that board uh, with J.J. Abernathy and Dr. Fawson. Um, and then the second board that uh, I joined was the dino, uh, it was a dinosaur board of the Johnson track from Laverna Johnson and that family. And that was that was the begin. That was before in the inception the the building of had been built, but the nonprofit side of the organization was getting stabilized. Um, and then I served on the St. George um, Musical Theater Board, uh, and then several other boards in between. But that's how I got started uh, in the community and through service uh, with, with those organizations. And, and pretty soon, you know, you're you're in the community. I don't. Uh, I'm a big believer in not. Uh, joining boards for your own professional matriculation networking. Um, there's many other avenues to do that way. And sometimes 
that is often seen as the reason why people join boards because it looks good on a resume. I find that uh, doing a lot of organizational training, those individuals actually become obstacles to the growth of the organization um, because when, especially when it's a roll up your sleeve, what we call kitchen table board, um, the in investment, if the investment is to, um, to give you access uh, and to build a resume, then the policies that need to be made sometimes do not have the force of the, the execution of those. So a board will come up with, we're going to do this, but no one volunteers to be chair. Mm. And so they'll go for a year just speaking about, we're going to do this, and no one rises to the occasion to take on that task. And that usually means to me that there's some individuals on a board that's out of sync with the successful nature of that board being built and executing its mission. Yeah, very important, the, the reason you're, you're joining, right? Yeah, that's good, good advice. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, let's uh, let's uh, jump into um, some of these uh, themes, uh, topics that I've been previewing. Uh, let's start with your your talk. Your, this is a kickoff, I understand, of, of this Leadership Academy um, and a bridge between that Leadership Academy and the One Utah Summit, which used to be called the Utah Rural Summit. Uh, so your talk is is uh, titled "Leading with Creativity, Kindness, and Inclusion." What uh, what are the what are your major themes there that you're going to be hitting? Um, well, I'm just going to pause for a moment because Melinda Thorpe, who is the director of um, community education and um, um, community engagement for SUU, a brilliant, brilliant woman uh, who I've known. She actually was a publicist for my traveling shoe show uh, with her own agency prior to her coming to SUU. She had her own agency. And when when she contacted me to present, um, she wanted to think about diversity in a different way. She'd heard me over the years um, make the comment that um, I prefer the word difference than diversity. And, and so we've talked about some of those themes together. And so uh, I, a diversity talk was not, you know, I, I, you know, people go on YouTube and, you know, they could go to YouTube U and, and Venmo, you know, VMO and all these wonderful, um, not Venmo, uh, you know, they can go to other platforms to find a lot of information about that. But the inspirational and aspirational on idea on how do we, in today's world, our greatest challenge, learn new ways of working in the realm of difference. And oftentimes, even when I've gone to participated in a diversity training, either as a facilitator, the poignant first question for me is to name where you are, and, and then what are you diversifying from? And oftentimes there's hesitancy to name where an organization or a company is at. Because if you're going to use the word diversity, then you, then you almost have to 
say, what are we diversifying from? And most people are thinking of diversifying as adding something to something. But when you identify what is the, what are you adding to, what are you diversifying? If you think of someone who has a financial portfolio and they're diversifying their portfolio. And, and organizations that are uh, companies that fail to go into that deep end of the ocean, and it, it sometimes can be a platitude. And so this talk that, uh, that through a digest of conversation between what were the needs of the participants, um, what were the metrics of takeaways. And uh, I wanted to do a theoretical talk, but that wasn't what ended up happening. Uh, so we went in the direction of inspirational and aspirational and I say that because it's not a motivational talk. I feel like once everyone is in the room, they don't need to be motivated. And so to inspire, you know, to water the roots of an already planted tree. And for those who are in leadership, it is speaking from that shared vantage point of, compadres uh, may have been on the road a little bit longer than than what leaders who may be newly emerging, but we're all pilgrims on this journey uh, to build a better world. And so I much prefer the word difference. And so we came up the the terminology creativity, which I which creativity that 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 ability to hold very perspectives. And that really is a, I think of creativity very much rooted in uh, certainly the humanities and the arts, but it's also rooted in the, in science. And, um, and this is such a powerful place that we've, I feel that we're finding ourselves, um, and especially with the age of artificial intelligence, that is I would use the word forcing us to define what does it mean to be human. And I think that's where the science and the humanities working together will serve the leaders to develop this new philosophy uh, that blends the best and most relevant of these two great branches of learning. Um, and I think it was uh, um, um, Edward, I can't remember his last name, but he wrote the book Origins of Creativity, and he calls it the third enlightenment. And um, and that's why I'm so happy to be living at this time in history. I mean, if we had to simulate a time travel and bring back the Michelangelo's and the you know the great philosophers of the Renaissance era, um, this is what we're. This is that age of enlightenment in a different way. And that's creative, that's creative thinking, um, kindness. Um, and it's just the um, etymology of the word, meaning uh, making a part of. And, um, and so kindness is action. Some people think of it as a characteristic of the heart. And I think of it as actions. And kind acts, the acts that you do to make something a part of. Um, and then 
inclusion, and that word in it in itself um, is, you know, the bringing of the parts together in a creative way. Um, that's the third enlightenment. That's the compass. That the inclusion is where all of this is synergistically happening, and uh, from that point, we get to tackle the big emerging questions of our time. And um, I call it the nexus. Um, uh, we're in the nexus, the leaders, when, and I'm specifically speaking to this as a competency for leaders, is that understanding that as a nexus that you bring to your de- the work that you do, um, the decisions that you make, and what you envision for the future. We're due for another break. Let's take another break. And then I want to, when we come back, I want to talk about uh, rural towns. And uh, you said we, we talked to a couple days ago, you, you, and I think you talk about this, uh, rural towns have a lot to teach, um, you know, urban areas, I guess, about community building. I want to talk about that and, uh, and uh, another couple of topics as well as we move forward in this hour. Uh, we're talking with Janice Brooks who is chairwoman of the Utah Humanities Council, governing board member for Intermountain Healthcare, St. George Regional Hospital, and IHC Ethics Committee member. Uh, she's giving a keynote address to the One Utah Summit titled Leading with Creativity, Kindness, and Inclusion. And that speech is tomorrow at 11 a.m. The summit is ongoing today and tomorrow, and you can uh, view a stream of the summit. Uh, it's being streamed live at suu.edu slash live. You can find Janice Brooks at her website, janbrookssynergies.com. Email is jan at janbrookssynergies.com. She's on Twitter at jbsynergies. And we'll have more following this. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Explore Logan, Utah. Family fun October 14th through the 16th at the Fall Harvest Festival at the American West Heritage Center. Plus the Pumpkin Walk, Gardener's Market, and Haunted Downtown Ghost Tours. UPR's The Moth Storytelling Live is October 21st. Details at explorelogan.com. Support also comes from USU Libraries, presenting the Arrington Mormon History Lecture, a marvelous work reading Mormonism in West Africa by Laurie Maffley Kipp. Thursday, October 7th, 7 p.m. in the Danes Concert Hall. On the floor of a Florida cigar factory, a Leo Tolstoy novel is read out loud to the immigrant workers. He covered her face and shoulders with kisses. Inciting passions and jealousies with each new chapter. Jimmy Smith stars in Anna in the Tropics by Nilo Cruz. Next time on L.A. Theatre Works. Tune in Friday night at 9 here on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, responding to the hour with Janice Brooks. She's chairwoman of the Utah Humanities Council, governing board member for Intermountain Healthcare St. George Regional Hospital and IHC Ethics Committee uh, member. Uh, she's giving a keynote address to the One Utah Summit titled Leading with Creativity, Kindness, and Inclusion. That speech is tomorrow at 11 a.m. That summit is being streamed live, and you can uh, view that uh, by going to suu.edu slash sutvlive, and that's ongoing today and tomorrow. 
Um, and you can find Janice Brooks at her website, janbrookssynergies.com. Email is jan at janbrooksynergies.com. She's on Twitter at jbsynergies. So Janice Brooks, uh, I want to have you talk about this. Uh, you, the statement you made, rural towns have a, have a lot to teach community building, about community building. Uh, talk about that, would you? Uh, before I do that, uh, Tom, would you just allow me a courtesy? Just I regarding the Utah Humanities, um, it, it, my tenure actually ends this month. In the new chair uh, that we passed the gavel, so I want to make certain that that's clear. Um, that uh, so she will begin her first meeting. Phyllis Hockett is the new chair of the Utah, Utah Humanities. So I wanted to make that clear. Her ah. first meeting will be in October. So there's a passing of the gavel and we're in that transition phase. Very, very good. Um, uh, so I wanted to make that uh, distinction. But, when, uh, but let's go back to uh, rural, the question of rural. I, one of the things that I was thinking of that when I, um, in um, 2015, when um, I arrived in beautiful Logan uh, and was just, I feel like uh, UPR staff are like family and, and I've developed some wonderful friendships, a lifetime, um, Terry Guy, who I would impale myself on a sword for. <laughs> but I was, um, um, Shalane and Carrie Bringhurst, and, but I was thinking, I distilled down to a, a couple of experiences that, um, was so poignant as a real experiences, and even coming to town, you were I was on your radio show. We went over to That's Cafe right. Ibis, and as you know, people start showing up at Cafe Ibis, and they said they wanted to come down and and meet Janice Brooks. Now, someone had tweeted that I was at Cafe Ibis, and. So all these people showed up, you know, when we were having conversations. And that, to me, is the way rural towns, rural towns know how to be inclusive. Someone moves in, people are still taking over casserole dishes. You know, somebody's coming by and saying, do, do you need anything? And they're getting to know their neighbors. And they... They know and have access where you know, they can call up the mayor and um, stop by the mayor's house. And in, in those ways, I mean that ineffable, not so much the tangible aspect of it, but that space within the heart that says we're all in this together. And so they're not as siloed as cities, and I think that's a competency that rural communities bring. Um, I think of my time, um, I was spending time as a, um, a community chaplain and going to visit people in Kanab and Panguage and Hatch and um, Ephraim and um, all the little towns and little rural places around and you you could go in a store one or two times, and after that, someone knew you. And that is a competency of being present, observing your environment. And that has nothing 
to do with the way the world is moving fast. It means that that is part of how you live in the world. And that's the competency in some ways that I think the rural communities uh, bring. I, I think also rural communities in terms of, of growth, when we think of those uh, places, uh, Vernal and places where, um, you know, there are the mining towns and a lot of tech businesses. I think of Hilldale in Colorado um, City in the Short Creek area where uh, near where I live, and the fabulous mayor there, Mayor Donia Jessup. And so, you know, sometimes technology moving into those areas, um, I like to think I use the parable of, of, of islands and, the, and so bringing these technical islands, bringing this technical technology and innovation. But the caution is, does the, tech, does the innovation leave when the, the leaders who bought the technology to the island leave? And now the inhabitants have nothing. And I think that is certainly one of the central things that's very important for me uh, in relationship to agriculture and farming, and um, um, which is a livestock. That those kinds of ways of being in the world. But that would, how do we sustain those type of economies? Because I don't want to, I don't, I personally don't want all my food coming in a box. And so it's important for growers in that, and farmers to nurture a next generation of how do we live in harmony with the land. So I'm one of the absolutely fascinating, fascinating um, books actually is called The Last Cowboy. And, um, that's right about the Wright family. But what you really see is that in its the cow the cowboys taking their livestock to graves to to graze on BLM land. So what happens where you know they're paying for grazing rights? But you really get to see, and that book makes clear and in, in good plain speak as they say, uh, that you, you really get to see this demarcation between how do we maintain that as a livelihood so that we're able to sustain ourselves as humans. And we can still do vertical gardens, and there's so many other ways to do that. Um, but life and nurturing food from the ground is just this substances that we all need, water and food, and, um, and that's vitally important. I think those, typically those communities have a stronger work, work ethic, and so it's, you know, certainly not uncommon for a certain industry to want to move their industrial aspect of their building. Of, of their products and uh, industrialization of that to communities where you actually maybe are paying less and you have work ethic. Um, but again, when they leave, all uh, we don't want all to be lost. 
And I think that was some of the components that will certainly be discussed at this one rule summit that is really important because that affects all of us. That is whether, you know, you live in Provo or you live in Salt Lake County or St. George or Zion, um, having food grown near you, uh, and I think of it as medical issues, you know, uh, in an age where diabetes and uh, is so predominant, what are the foods that we're eating that is contributing to our health? And, you know, tomatoes from some other country that will sit on your counter for five months and uh, is not sustainable food for the body. So um, I am enlivened around these conversations and how we're envisioning um, protecting our rural communities as a priority to sustain all life. That's a very important aspect to me. It's a value that I hold dear. We just have about uh, three minutes left, so that we'll have to be uh, kind of brief with this. But I do want to make sure we we fit the one last topic in, uh, Janice Brooks. Um, you and I were talking, as I mentioned a couple of days ago, uh, talking about your, uh, you know, the traveling shoes where you uh, performed. Uh, one woman show performed eight women in history, and now you do lectures on this. And uh, expanding from that to where we are with civil rights, talking about Black Lives Matter, you you said a phrase very important. I wonder if you'd uh, just talk very briefly about this. Uh, you talked about uh, we, we need to have cultural humility. What did you mean by that? Um, the word humility, to return to the ground of your being. And... Um, and so if we return to the ground of our being, that as Americans, there have been triumphs and there have been tragedies, but to return to the ground of the being takes some cultural humility. And this is our task of this generation. Um, rather than moving into denial, it's painful. It's painful when we think of the ways in which other humans have died at the hands of hatred. And um, you only need to see a picture of someone hanging and being hung from a tree and other people standing with their best, their Sunday best clothes on, and they went to view it. So this is a turning of the human mind. And that cultural humility to move not into denial because it's too painful, but to move into humility and allow that pain within you to say, yes, that has happened, but no more. That's humility. And that's what each person, because it's not a fight, it is what we get to do in this time in America's history. Well, a uh, good place to end the hour uh, together. Of course, much more we could say, but the, the hour is over. And uh, uh, Janice Brooks has been our uh, guest uh, for a little while longer. She'll be chairwoman of the Utah Humanities Council. She's governing board member for Intermountain Healthcare St. George Regional Hospital and IHC Ethics Committee member. Much else, of course, and we've uh, treated that from her biography uh, today. Uh, very involved in the community. 
Um, and uh, she's giving a keynote address to the One Utah Summit titled Leading with Creativity, Kindness, and Inclusion. That speech is tomorrow at 11 a.m. That summit is ongoing today and tomorrow at Southern Utah University. You can view a live stream of the events at suu.edu slash live. And you can find Janice Brooks at her website, janbrookssynergies.com. Email is jan at janbrooksynergies.com. She's on Twitter at jbsynergies. Uh, Janice Brooks, uh, such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. I just have loved spending this time with you today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you uh, a lot for all you do. Um, and uh, thanks, I'm everyone. Kisses to everybody at oh, PR. Uh, yes, uh, I'll, I'll certainly do that. Thank you so much. Okay. Um, and thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members. And Golden West Insurance Services, providing Utah State University alumni affordable options on auto, homeowners, RV, and umbrella policies. Available at any Golden West or USU Credit Union branch from Logan to St. George. Details at usucu.org. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide member-supported service of Utah State University, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU-FM Logan, also heard at upr.org. The Moth is true stories told live without notes. Join us at the Ellen Eccles Theater in Logan on Thursday, October 21st for the Moth main stage. Masks will be required and proof of vaccination or negative test results to enter. Just like the Moth Radio Hour, this live show will revolve around a theme, with storytellers exploring it often in unexpected ways. Since each story is true and every voice authentic, the show dances between documentary and theater. Tickets are available now. Find a link at upr.org and we hope we'll see you there. It's 10 o'clock.